All right, I'm James Evans, and I'm going to be reading for us this semester. We're going to be reading from Ephesians, excuse me. Our scripture passage tonight is Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. If you have your Bible, you can turn in it, or if yours was stolen like mine was, you can just look on the sheet. Paul, an apostle, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all his wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. These are the words of our Lord. I wonder when the last time was when you had something, when you had something happen to you uh, that was so great or so exciting uh, that you just had to tell somebody about it. Uh, and, and have you come to realize that there are certain experiences that actually aren't all that much fun unless you get to tell somebody about it? You ever thought about this? That, that Part of the fun of having the great experience is being able to, to say it to somebody. Um, as you know that I'm a bit of a pop culture uh, junkie, and every holiday with all that sort of boatloads of time, I love to sort of catch up on uh, stuff that I've been wanting to watch. And my latest obsession that I just have to talk about is uh, ESPN's 30 for 30 uh, documentaries. Uh, these things are unbelievable, and I had a friend of mine recommend them to me, and my wife and I, uh, just the other night, were watching the, the one on... Um, on Marcus Dupree, who is a Mississippi guy. You've got to watch this thing. It's so good. Um, but it was funny. The guy who recommended the, 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 that particular episode to me uh, is a very dear friend of mine. And I found myself, while I was watching this documentary, being blown away by the things that I was hearing and seeing. But every time I would see something that sort of amazed me, either about Marcus Dupree and his history and all the, the, the amazing themes that sort of came out of his whole story... I honestly couldn't think about it without thinking about my friend who had told me about it. <laughs> and it was all I could do the next day to pick up the phone and call him and be like, I watched it. This was amazing. <laughs> In other words, there are certain experiences that you honestly are not enjoying until you get to talk about it. Does that make sense? Now, the reason why I'm going into this is because we tend to find ourselves among religious uh, Christian types like ourselves. Uh, with something that I think is oftentimes misrepresented in Christian circles. Uh, and that is, uh, people are oftentimes very confused by what Christians mean when they talk about worship and when they talk about praise. 
Um, these activities are typically thought of by your average Joe on the street who only has a sort of peripheral understanding of Christianity as, um, you know, worship is that feeling state that you kind of work yourself up into when, um, you know, the lights get turned down low and the music turns kind of moody or something, and uh, I just kind of feel God that's there. Um, that's not what the Bible thinks about when it talks about worship. Worship is... <laughs> In many ways, no different than the activity of me thinking that the 30 for 30 documentaries are awesome. In other words, when you find something that you think is amazing, so much so that you will carve out like hours of time just to sit, you, know, you, will, you will fill up your Netflix queue with nothing but 30 for 30 documentaries. You will carve out your time, your energy, your daydreams go back to it. You find ways of talking about it in your conversation. That's worship. Does that make sense? You're giving your energies to it. And, and what comes out of your mouth as you're worshiping that thing is what the Bible calls praise. You follow that? What that means is, is that worship and praise is not just relegated to religious people. You have been, in some senses, I almost can guarantee you this week, worshiping and praising something. Because there's something that sort of lit you up inside, so much so that you actually went back and talked to somebody else about it. You worshiped. And then you praise that thing. This activity is very regular. Now, why do I introduce with that? Well, look, this semester we are going to look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his very favorite congregation uh, at a little city called Ephesus. And of all of the things that we could say about this letter, the opening um, reveals one central feature, and that is this. The Apostle Paul is torqued up about something. He just is. This is a man whose imagination has been blown wide open. And exhibit A is what James just read for you. Verse 3 all the way through to the end of verse 14 is in the original language that the New Testament was written in, Greek, one sentence with no punctuation. In other words, the Apostle Paul just kind of gets started on this idea of God's blessing and he goes to one other thing and he says that this other thing and this other thing and another thing. Until it just all rolls out in this giant, unwieldy wad of amazing theology. But what I want you to notice is what we rarely notice is that it's something that he's gotten excited about. <laughs> he's not writing a paper. He's simply allowing something to come out that is born up inside of him from joy. He's pumped about it. And I simply want to pitch this at you. Next week, we're going to talk more about the big picture that I want to use to see as the lens as we're going to look through Ephesians. Y'all are hopefully by now used to me doing that. I like to find a theme that ties this together. We're going to talk about that next week. But all I want to do tonight is just ask you this. What is it that drives you? And is there anything in your life at all that can come close to reflecting what the Apostle Paul has here? Because in this list, he gives us probably a thousand different things that we could spend the next 10 years in RUF looking at. But tonight, in about 25 minutes, I want to show you four. <laughs> in other words, I want to take this little jewel of this sort of explosion of praise that Paul gives, and I just want to hold it up and turn it and watch how the light cuts it up from different angles. Four things I want you to see. Paul is excited about election, <laughs> adoption, redemption, and inheritance. Okay? And here's the deal. We've got to go blowing through this, so bear with me tonight. Number one... <laughs> The first thing that thrills Paul is the knowledge that before he was born, even before the whole cosmos was made, 
God made a determination to do something. He chose him. He chose him. He even goes so far as to use the P word, predestined us to do something. In other words, Paul is rejoicing in the thought that before he could even think, he was thought about. (laughs) Uh, That before he could ever love, he was loved. Even though God knew that what he would find in him was decidedly unlovely (laughs) and uninteresting to think about. That before all time, he was thought about and loved. Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself. (laughs) There's no way that you just did that. We just got back. It's the spring semester. You know, I brought my friend this time. (laughs) And suddenly, you're going to the P word. All right? Now, look. But I promise you, it's my commitment to deal with the text and not my pet little topics. All right? I realize it would not be my choice to go diving into a topic like this because, quite honestly, it's a controversial one. And there's a lot of people in Christendom who kind of choke on this idea, this idea that God does this choosing. I mean, what about our choosing and his choosing? And sometimes we look at it in such a way as to sort of, I think, take away a bit of its amazing quality. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do for literally three minutes tonight. Set aside for just a moment your deep, heaving, philosophical (laughs) sort of repellence towards this idea. And I simply want you to look at it in its beauty that there might be something in here, a nugget in here, that would be the source of explosive joy for you that you may not have ever seen in your experience with Christianity. I want to tell you that there are few things that could be more thrilling to you than that you were chosen before you could choose. That's what I want to pitch at you. Why? Because here, if your relationship to God, and this is a basic tenet of Christianity, if your relationship to God rests essentially on your choice for him, then I want to submit to you that you will probably never be secure as a Christian. There, I said it. (laughs) Please come back next week, please. You know, it's not my fault. It was in the Bible. Um, I love to ask this question of the freshmen, and freshmen, I'm sure you'll remember this from the fall. If tonight you assume you and God to be on the same page, why do you assume that to be the case? Are you and God, like, okay with each other tonight? And if you answer that question, yes, why do you say that? Because if your answer to that is, well, Les, when I was in seventh grade, I went on a retreat and I prayed a prayer. If that's your answer, my question to you is, is, well, then how do you know if you were sincere enough in that prayer? Was it the right prayer? Was it a good prayer? Did you really mean that prayer? You might look and say, well, it was because I repented of my sins. Then I would look at you and say, well, how do you know that you repented with pure motives? Right? In other words, do you see the point that if anything... As as a matter of fact, if your relationship to anyone depends upon your sincerity or your effort, or how about this, your loveliness, your beauty, I I submit to you that you will never, that relationship will always be unstable because it'll do nothing more than make you more self-conscious. Some of you are in relationships right now that are based upon whether or not you are attractive to that other person. But here's what Paul says. Paul says, I discovered in, in, in the message that Jesus brought, that there was this idea that there was a love that was its own justification. In other words, I found that there was an idea that got rid of all of my self-hatred because it was a love that was its own rationale. Why does he love me? Because he loves me. That's it. Because it's somewhere in his heart. You can't lose it because it's infallible. 
In other words, it's a, it's a knowledge that sort of gets rid of not only self-hatred, but also self-inflation. In other words, the reason that you become a Christian, Paul is saying, is not because there was something good in you, but it was only because of his grace. The doctrine of election leads us to that. Finally, I think that election gets rid of self-pity. In other words, it's impossible to some, for someone who understands this kind of salvation to, that's completely by grace to feel sorry for themselves because the value of knowing that overcomes whatever fear that even comes up from my own heart. I, I was speaking with someone who's very near and dear to me who is elderly. They are venturing into their 70s. And it's very interesting to talk to older people as they're thinking about death. Old people think about death a lot. I heard one guy one, one time say, I think about death as much as you think about sex. Let that settle in for you there, gentlemen. <laughs> but I was talking with this person, and they were, they were wrestling through the fear of what happens when you get old if you lose your mind. You ever thought about this? What happens if you, um, if you uh, uh, plunge into dementia and, and you can't think and you can't think properly? And they were looking at me saying, what happens if all of a sudden in the midst of that de- uh, dementia state, I, I, I curse God? Is my eternal soul in jeopardy at that point? And, of course, I wanted to say, well, not if you believe like the Apostle Paul believes. Because what Paul says is, is this is a love that will not let me go. <laughs> you want to know why? Because it's not about me. It's not dependent on the goodness in me. Actually, quite the opposite. <laughs> it was based upon a full knowledge of the worst about me. So that there's no sort of revelation of sin in me that can somehow spoil his desire to bless me. Okay, it's a bitter pill. Please come back next week. That's the first one, election. Secondly, Paul is also excited about adoption. He's excited about adoption. Now we're on much more friendly territory, aren't we? Look, the word that you have translated there, adoption in the Greek, literally means to make a son, to make son. Now look, there was no custom for a Jewish person, but in Roman culture there was a very interesting custom that some scholars think that Paul was referring to. Uh, And it was actually prominent in that culture at that time. Interestingly, adoption was usually done back in the day for an adult. It was an older person that was adopted. A man who who was the head of an estate, uh, who had no heir, found someone that he admired for whatever reason. And he goes to that person and he adopts them. In other words, he makes them a son. But when he did this, several things happened. First of all, all of the son's old obligations, their old debts, their old things were instantly gotten rid of. They were paid in full at that very moment. Secondly, he instantly becomes as wealthy as his father, his new father, his new adopted father. Thirdly, the father becomes liable for what the son does. He becomes responsible for his behavior. And then fourthly and finally, the son has the responsibility of carrying on both the wealth and the name and reputation of the father. That was adoption. So, in in the midst of that rich sort of cultural tradition that Roman people would have known about in that time, Paul looks and says, that is exactly what happens to the believer. That's exactly what happens to the Christian. In other words, adoption is not merely a change in your nature. As a matter of fact, it's not a change in your nature at all. Let me change that. Adoption is rather a change in your status. It's your standing. It's a change in the way in which the universe is viewing you. I know I'm not talking too strangely because some of you have had those moments where you've gotten up or maybe gone to bed and thought to yourself, it just seemed like the world was against me today. You know how that feels? Adoption guarantees that that will never happen, that God will always and forever be on your side. 
Because you're his son. He has taken your obligations. He has canceled all debts. And he has given you the responsibility of carrying on the fame of his name. Kind of a big deal. Now, the reason why this is important for Paul is because over and over again in places like Galatians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8, we find Paul saying, therefore, Christians have a spirit about them. Don't let that language throw you off. It just means that they they have an attitude, a, a way of thinking that was not a spirit of fear, but as a spirit of sonship. And guess what? That word there is the same one we have here in Ephesians 1. That is, Christians have this air of being sons of God, of children of God. Now, that's not interesting until you think about how different this would have been if you lived in in Paul's day. I want you to imagine for a moment an ancient Near Eastern Roman household. All right, you probably had a head of a household who was very wealthy. He would have, obviously, his family roaming around the house at any given time. He would also have his servants and, not to notwithstanding, his servants' children. They would all be meandering about. And if you were a stranger and walked into this person's home and you looked around, you might not be able to tell the difference between the children of the master and the children of the slaves, would you? They would all look alike as you looked at them. You'd say, well, it's the same kind of people, same house, who knows whose is whose, right? But the funny thing was, it would all change when you began to talk to them. Because when you spoke to the slaves' children, the reason why they are there working for the master and, deal, and living in the house the way in which they are is because they're deathly afraid of what will happen if they don't. In other words, the slave works under compulsion. He works under a slavish fear that if I don't do these things, God will cast me out. But the son is different. The true child looks and says, I work because there's this person called my father whom I love. And actually, it's really not so much about my love for him as his love for me. He can't kick me and won't kick me out of his family. Do you see the difference? Let me ask you a question. Tonight, if you fancy yourself a religious Christian type of person, are you living as a slave or are you living as a son? Is there a spirit in you of sort of responding to God's motions in your life in terms of a slavish fear? (gasps) What will happen if I've just been living this terrible life and I don't know what God's going to do to me if I don't get myself straight? I'm going to RUF tonight. Hey, we're glad you're here. We won't talk about election all semester long, I promise. Or is there something inside of you that looks and says, he loves me that much? i got to find out more about that. Look, y'all, election, adoption has lit Paul up on the inside. It ought to do the same to us. Thirdly, there's redemption. And not only just redemption, but redemption by his blood. Here we go again with the whole bloody thing. And I love to quote from Tim Keller's um, Reason for God book, as I am wont to do, um, where he mentions a conference speaker who was uh, talking about this whole idea of why Christians are so into the whole blood thing. Have you ever thought like this conference speaker does? He once said, I don't think we need a theology of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? I, I, a lot of times when I hear atheists interview, I watched um, Ricky, uh, is it Gervais or Gervais, whatever his name is, who did the Golden Globes, which are hilarious. Um, and Ricky Gervais was being interviewed on the new show. What's the guy's name? Morgan Piers. He was being interviewed. It was a great interview. And of course, you know, um, um, Ricky Gervais is a very prominent atheist. And he was talking about, you know, the mockery of, I just don't get it why in the world you would have 
a man who 2,000 years ago somehow gets lofted up onto an execution stand and bleeds and somehow that purges me of my sin. (laughs) It seems bizarre to this culture. And my guess is it's probably bizarre when people ask the question in that way who aren't from necessarily Christian backgrounds. What does that mean? But here's what... um, Here's what Keller says in his book. I think it's brilliant. He says, look, in the real world of relationships, people realize that it is impossible to love people with a problem or a need without in some sense sharing or even changing places with them. Listen to this. All life-changing real love involves some form of this kind of exchange. Did you catch that? In other words, what he's saying is, Let me ask it to you this way. When was the last time that you made an attempt to be there for an emotionally or socially broken person in your life? You know what I'm talking about? Like, were you determined to say, this person is hurting. They're in pain. They are broken psychologically, emotionally, socially, whatever. When was the last time that you determined you were going to be there for that person? Because here's the deal. There's no way for you to enter into that proposition without discovering very quickly that you will not be there for that person without it costing you. There is no such thing as a love that doesn't drain you. This is what happens as a parent. I, I, I can remember tangibly when these things occurred to me. They were mostly when we brought our babies home. Ginger never understood, but I spent the first two weeks of all three of my children's lives nauseated. I really did. Because I recognized pretty quickly, even in the hospital, that... No one was going to take care of this child if we didn't, you know? I mean, it was, this, the ball is in our court. And, and this child, without me sacrificing boatloads of personal freedom, independence, energy, emotions, social activity, this person won't, won't thrive at all. They'll die without that. Love is no love that does not cost, and there is no greater cost than the shedding of your own blood. And to be honest with you, As weird as that sounds, I think our culture knows more about this than we think. I want to suggest to you tonight, and this is my little premise that I've been dealing with all over the holidays. I honestly think that the most perceptive and creative people who are making culture in our world today know that guilt is real and blood is important. I'm fascinated by this. I have seen enough episodes of Dexter to know, bear with me, that there is something in his fascination. The idea that the blood spatters would tell stories. But the funny thing about that is, I think there's another story that he knows because he's trying to resolve in his character this, this, this monster that he knows that he is with the blood that he sees and can't stop being addicted to. And there's that conflict in his own mind that I can't get tired of watching. It's a rough show. Watch the edited TBS version, okay. But here's the thing, blood... This culture knows this, and that's why they're portraying it the way in which they do. They know that it has something to do with something important in the life of a person. Is that so strange that the Bible would be in touch with that same notion? Is it so strange that in Leviticus it says that the life of the creature is in the blood, that there's something there that can relieve me of guilt? Because here's the other thing. I think this culture knows that guilt is real. The most creative, perceptive writers are looking and saying that there's oftentimes a mist of fog around people that they don't know how to shake off, that they feel like their souls have been bought, that they have been sold away to slavery, that they can't get out of it themselves. They don't know what to do about it. This is, this is the essence of, of modern drama, I think. 
And I'll give an example. It's an old example. But since Jeff Bridges has gotten so cool, and this guy is riding an unbelievable wave in our day, is he not? Well, if you get interested in Jeff Bridges' sort of prior work to some of his latest movies, you need to go hunt a, book, uh, a movie called The Fisher King, a little obscure movie that he did with uh, Robin Williams a number of years ago. I actually saw it in the theater, strangely enough. The story goes this way. Jeff Bridges is this um, uh, radio, uh, sort of shock radio DJ who does this show where inadvertently one time, because he kind of um, works up a call-in uh, guest to his show, that call-in guest then hangs on the phone, gets a semi-automatic high-powered weapon, and guns down and massacres these people uh, in a restaurant. And all of a sudden, you watch Jeff Bridges' life kind of spiral out of control. But as the story goes down, he ends up coming across a man who has gone insane, played by Robin Williams, because he was one, his wife was in the restaurant, and he lost his wife because of what Jeff Bridges had done, even though the man who's crazy, Robin Williams' character, didn't realize that. But Bridges' character sort of goes on this mission to try to help this man, because if he can help Robin Williams' character, maybe he'll be able to release himself and ease his own guilt. But my favorite line in the whole movie is when Bridges, sort of in this moment of desperation, looks down and sort of utters to no one, I wish that I could just pay the fine and go home. Whew. You ever thought like that? I wish I could just pay the fine and go home because it feels like everything's against me. It feels like I'm against me, much less God. Paul looks and says, he is thrilled. He's blown away because he's found someone to buy him back, to assuage his guilt because it was bought with blood. The one thing that has the power to do so, election, adoption, redemption. And fourthly and finally, and I'll finish with this one, an inheritance. Paul talks about an inheritance. In other words, having talked about his past, the things that God has done from the past, he then looks to his future Verse 11 and 14 sort of say something that I think is kind of contradictory. You might not have noticed it. In verse 11, he says, we have obtained an inheritance. But then in verse 14, he says, we wait for our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Well, what is Paul talking about? Are we waiting on an inheritance or do we already have it? Great question. What Paul is saying is something very essential about the Christian life. And that is simply this, that we have received by the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, a small little taste, a down payment of something that is coming in droves for you in your unimaginable future. Does that make sense? In other words, God does not leave his people to guess about their futures. He only tells us what we will experience then. But in telling us, he not only tells us what we're going through, but he gives us little drops, little foretastes of it. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Um, I remember a number of years ago coming home and, uh, uh, on a su Saturday evening and being uh, excited because Ginger had uh, 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 recorded the Ole Miss football game on television. And I sat there and watched the Rebels play in that sort of hard-to-describe anxiety that every Rebel sports fan goes through, worried to death about how the outcome of the game was going to come, right? But what was interesting was is Ginger sitting right next to me had no such anxieties. She sat there quite peacefully. You want to know why? Because she knew the ending. She knew for certain about the ending. And what that means is, is when we know for certain our ending, it brings peace now. 
Does that make sense? The more certain the ending, the more peaceful that I am now. And so Paul looks and says that he's energized by this thought that his inheritance, listen, 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 is guaranteed. 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 How? By the Holy Spirit. Now look, don't let that weird you out too much. We oftentimes hear a word about the Holy Spirit and it's like, oh, here he goes. We're going into that weird stuff, the Holy Spirit, and my eyes are going to roll back in my head and that kind of thing. No, no, bear with me. Look, what Paul is saying is, is that God, when I got converted, when all of a sudden God began to work in me, I got new eyes. And suddenly, wherever I saw death, I saw God's fingerprints because he was bringing about resurrection in that place. In other words, Paul got to see little bitty resurrections here and there in his own life that made him all of a sudden realize that one day, someday, there was a big resurrection coming. Look, y'all, I think this is important because he saw his conscience being healed. He began to see his fears being settled. He began to see families being reunited. He began to see neighborhoods being cleaned up. He began to see the poor being fed. He began to see people being able to sacrifice, whereas before they were self-absorbed. He saw all those things, and he looked and said, that's what I'm talking about. Those are the little resurrections that God is bringing about in the face of of horrible death. Hey, look, y'all, college. Um, and our own little family is, is, is uh, our own little Arya family here is well, well aware of this. But college is typically the first time for you that you begin to see that, that life can be really sad. There is stuff that can come down the pike while you're in college that's just hard. And a lot of times you find even the words to be able to say to somebody what it's like. Look, y'all, but here's the promise. Here's what God is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. Is that every now and then God lays his fingerprint on places of death that assure you that there is going to be a resurrection. And I recognize that for a lot of you are looking and saying, I've never seen that. It's all darkness, Les. It's been gray. I've been depressed. I've been out for the holidays. I did not even want to come back this semester. I know. But I simply want to offer you this one thought. What if that wasn't true? Because when pain comes into our life, the temptation to look at those pain, those painful moments, those painful experiences, is to take them and kind of um, expand them out. To look and say, this is not just a sad thing that happened to me. That, that life is just sad. And life doesn't have a happy ending. But what Paul is looking and saying is this. He says, what if I could guarantee you that there are no sad endings with this God? <laughs> and he comes in to do something that you can't do for yourself. Whew. Election, adoption, redemption, and an inheritance. Something, y'all, has lit Paul up. Reminds me of Mr. Incredible. I love The Incredibles. My kids are leaving the Disney age, and that breaks my heart. Love The Incredibles because there's this wonderful little scene where Mr. Incredible is facing his life, falling down around him. He's losing his children. He's losing his marriage. He's lost his career. And all of a sudden, he looks over a little boy who's watched him do something, staring at him on his little big wheel. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Mr. Incredible looks over and barks at him, what are you looking for? 
little kid says, I don't know, something amazing. Mr. Incredible looks up and says, me too. Me too. Hey, look, what are you looking for? Because if it's something amazing, is it possible that maybe in your sort of blowing past Christianity, you miss something? And that you miss something amazing? And that maybe Paul is not quite as unlike you as you might think? So here's my challenge to you. What if you came back next week? And the week after that, and you set aside Wednesday nights to look and say, we're just going to dive into this book. We're going to take this little bird's eye view of this book and see if we can't find something in it that's amazing that might make me look at my tomorrow differently than I do now. I dare you. (laughs) Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to take that glimpse into that? To be honest with you, Lord Jesus, it is our sickness, that we struggle with the mundane. We struggle with boredom. And to be honest with you, if the truth be told, our experience in your churches have left us with the same experience. But Paul is different. What does he know that we don't? Oh, Lord Jesus, if you could just hear but that one prayer tonight from us, we would be forever changed. What does Paul know that we don't? What is he so excited about that would cause him to ramble on For these 11 verses, that if maybe we could just get a glimpse of it, maybe this wouldn't just be another spring, but maybe it'd be a time in which we really changed and in which something happened in us that couldn't have happened otherwise. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.